And let's pray together. Father, I just thank you because through the power of technology, we know that even right now there's hundreds and even thousands of people that are going to watch this message today. So just draw close to every home, to every computer, to every locality, and dwell among us as your word is taught today. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So it was the fall of 2011, and I'd recently come on the team here at Pioneer Memorial Church, and I walked into our pastoral staff meeting a little bit early, and there I find Pastor Dwight, our senior pastor, and Pastor Michael Getz, our youth pastor at the time, talking about the sport of running. Now, look, I can't remember what it was that I said. It must have been some kind of weak objection as to why I was currently not running, because after a few moments, Pastor Dwight said this. He said, look, Rodley, just get some running shoes and just get out there and just start running. So, all right. Like a good associate pastor, I saluted and I clicked my heels and I started running. In fact, I registered for the very next 5K race that I could find. It was the annual turkey trot that we have here in November. So after I finished that race successfully, somewhere towards the back of the line, I just thought I was ready for the next step in my running career. 10K race? No. A half marathon? Too pedestrian for me. I registered very soon after for none other than the Chicago Marathon. Now look, there's something that I need to confess to you that my wife already knows, and it's this, that whenever I do something, I get really, really into it. So I started reading books about running. I, I put a blog called Running Apprentice where I was cataloging things that I was learning about running. I was watching movies about running. I was taking videos of myself running to make sure that my biomechanics were good and that I was landing midfoot, forefoot, and not on my heel. So now you see just how into running I was actually getting. So I'm doing my training runs. I did the 10K training run. I did the half marathon training run and everything went well or so I thought. Yep. Because about two days afterwards, I all of a sudden started to feel a little bit of pain in my right foot. Now, look, if you do any running, you don't really pay too much attention to little pains here and there. It just kind of comes with the territory, but the pain started getting worse. I stopped my training. I went to see a doctor. He says, look, you need to see a specialist. So there I was in the office of the specialist. He has a picture on the screen, and he spat out some kind of indecipherable diagnosis. So I asked him, I said, look, doctor, here's my question. Can I run the Chicago Marathon or not? Here's what he said. He said, well, there's a possibility that you could run this race and be okay. Okay, but there's also a possibility that you could run this race and end up fracturing your foot. <sighs> so that was it. I needed to pull out of the race. I mean, just like you, I, I could not risk it. I was stopped from running the race before I could even start. Have any of you out there ever felt like that before? Have you ever been stopped from running kind of the metaphorical race of life before you could even start? Maybe you're one of our recent Andrews University graduates, or maybe you're getting ready to graduate. You had a, an internship lined up for the summer. You had a job lined up for the summer or for the fall, and all of a sudden, 
poof, just like that, as a result of this coronavirus pandemic, it's all up in the air. Maybe you have a job and you're planning to transition to something else and all of a sudden the company pulls back its offer. They said, look, we're watching the numbers. We have to watch our budget. We have to rescind that offer. Or maybe you had a job and like so many millions in this country and even across the world, all of a sudden the furloughs hit. They started laying people off and you no longer have a job. You know, sometimes we are stopped from running the race before we can even start. And sometimes we're seemingly pushed out of the race mid-race. Did you know that the Bible uses running metaphors to describe God's ultimate ideal for your life? Did you know that? It's true. Let me read this scripture for you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Notice what it says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So did you catch that? According to this scripture, if you're catching the pattern, God's ultimate will for your life is for you to cross over into the heavenly Cana. But here's the problem. The devil also has an ultimate will and kind of plan and purpose for your life as well. Yeah, we we read about it in John chapter 10, verse 10. The Bible says, the thief does not come except to three things, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So whereas God's ultimate plan and purpose for our life is for us to get to heaven, to cross over into the heavenly Canaan, the devil's purpose and plan for your life is to stop you and to block you. Today, we're actually beginning a brand new series called God's Waiting Room, where we're going to explore what it means to be in that in-between phase of life. I mean, here are all of us. Some states are beginning to open up. Some are still closed. Some people are sick. Some people are healthy. So many of us are in the waiting room of life right now. And truth be told, waiting rooms are places of anxiety, aren't they? Because we don't know what's on the other side. We don't know what we're going to be hearing. So many of us are in the waiting room. God's waiting room. Today, we're actually beginning a brand new series called God's waiting room. And today in this first part of the series, I'm going to be addressing the topic of the subtle strategy of the enemy to stop you. It's a really slight, really subtle strategy that he uses to stop you. Let me give you some context before we jump into the main scripture for today. We're going to zoom out 40,000 feet. You ready? All right. The devil was scared. It's true. I mean, there was Genesis chapter 12, and God called Abraham, and God told Abraham that out of him, he was going to bring about a nation. And the purpose of that nation was going to be to to be a blessing and to bring salvation to the entire planet. Okay, now fast forward several hundred years after that to Exodus chapter 19. There's this recently freed group of slaves, these Israelites. They're before Mount Sinai, and God is getting ready to affirm the next stage in his promise. He he, he was offering a covenant in agreement with his people. He says, look, I have a mission and a plan for you guys. And he told them, 
His vision was for them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, they were supposed to help usher in salvation and offer salvation to be missionaries to the entire planet. Of course, you know the story. They said, okay, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. So here's the devil. He was exceedingly scared because he saw Genesis chapter 12. He's watching the horizon of time. Genesis chapter 12 is completed. All of a sudden, the people, Exodus, are in front of Mount Sinai, and Exodus chapter 19 is completed. And he's seeing as God keeps fulfilling his promise to his people. And so now, God's people, we're going to drop into the main story, our main teaching for today. God's people are on the border of Cana, and the devil's scared. And so he knows, he says, well, wait a second. It looks like God is get, again is going to fulfill his promise and I've got to do everything in my power to stop his purposes from being accomplished. All right, let's jump into the main scripture for today. I want to invite you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 13 and beginning in verse 17. That's right, just pull out your Bibles, wherever you are, pull them out. We're going to read through this together. It says, then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way to the south and go up to the mountains. See what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether they land, whether the land they dwell in is, is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether they're forced there or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Okay, so you know this story. So there are these 12 brave, brave scouts go. They crisscross the land. And all of a sudden, at the end of 40 days, here's this congregation of a million plus people, the Israelites, and they see these 12 brave scouts coming back, but they're not coming back empty-handed. They're carrying something. They're doing this thing, right? They're coming back like this. Excitement fills the congregation. All of a sudden, they put down this thing that they had brought with them, everybody is surrounding them and they want to hear the report. Okay, so notice what, what they say. Verse 27, Numbers chapter 13. Then they told them and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. And they pause for dramatic effect. The crowd goes wild. I imagine everyone high-fiving and just celebrating and kind of chest-butting, if you will. They're just so amazed because they're thinking to themselves, well, wait a second. If the fruit is this large, if the fruit is this amazing, just imagine what other blessings are in store in this goodly land that God is giving us. It truly does flow with milk and honey. Oh, But they weren't done with the report. Then comes the bad news. They hush the congregation. Verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Let me ask you, church, did you catch 
what the subtle strategy of the enemy actually is. Here it is. I'm going to spell it out for you in case you missed it. The subtle strategy of the devil, one of the most powerful tools that he deploys in his arsenal to stop you from accomplishing your purpose is discouragement. It's true. And here's what you need to understand is that the devil will often send people or circumstances into your life to discourage you. It's true. It's a theological principle. Do you remember the story in Matthew chapter 16? There was Jesus was going into Jerusalem and he's preparing his disciples ahead of time. He says, look, when I go into Jerusalem, I'm going to be made to suffer. I'm going to experience death and there's going to be a resurrection. And you remember how Peter responded. How did he respond? He says, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You remember that? He says, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And do you remember Jesus' response now? He says, get thee behind me, Peter. Is that what he says? No. He says, get thee behind me. Help me out, church. Get thee behind me, Satan. Why was he saying that? Because Satan, at that moment, was working through Peter to discourage and stop Jesus from accomplishing his father's plan and purpose. So it's discouragement. It's the subtle strategy that the devil uses. And I want you to notice something, and this is kind of some bad and unfortunate news, that whenever the devil really wants to discourage you, he doesn't use outwardly, obviously wicked people to discourage you. No. Instead, he uses church folk. He uses church people to discourage you. Sometimes he uses the people that are closest to you to discourage you. Why? Oh, because it's less obvious that way. It it hurts all the worse if someone closer to you hurts you. So he uses Peter. He used Peter in that particular instance. Now, I want you to notice embedded in the story, there's actually two kinds of discouragers, two kinds of discouragement that the devil deploys into your life. Are you ready? The first one is this. Take some notes. Write this down. The first one is people who look at the same exact facts that you have, but they focus on the negative potential. Let me say that again. The first kind of discouragers that the devil sends into your life, they're people who they have the same facts that you have, but they focus on the negative potential. Notice the three realities in the story. Look at the story with me. The people are strong and powerful. They're warlike. Was that true or false? It was true. Okay, what about this one? The cities are fortified and very large. Was that true or false? True. So far, they're giving an accurate report. They say there's the, the descendants of Anak there. By, by the way, Goliath was a descendant of Anak. In other words, the land is filled with giants. Was that true or false? It was absolutely true. Everything that they said was true. How do we know that it was true? Well, because we notice Caleb does not rebut the facts at all. Notice what he says in verse 30. 
It says, then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. In other words, for Caleb, the bigger the challenge, the bigger the giants, the worse the circumstance, the greater the opportunity for God to manifest his faithfulness and his power. So God said, uh, sorry, Caleb said, yeah, it's true. That's why we should go in and take the land. But church, please don't miss this lesson. The first kind of discourager that the devil strategically deploys into your life, when God is getting ready to do something big, it's people who look at the same facts, but they focus on the negative potential. And I'm telling you, I've seen this time and time again, and you've seen this as well. Whenever God is getting ready to do something big in your life, whenever God is getting ready to do something big in his church, the devil deploys it. Because he knows that if you step into the purpose for which you are created, the devil knows that if you all of a sudden begin using the talents and the abilities that God has given you, he knows that his kingdom will certainly fall. So here's what he does. He whispers into your ear in his devilish bifocal tongue. He says, there's no way you could ever do that. You're just a woman. What do you know? You're just a man. Come on, what do you know? You're just a kid. How could you ever accomplish that? You don't have the training to do that. You don't have the ability to do that. You don't have the funding to do that. That's what he does. He tries to discourage you as much as possible so you do not accomplish the purpose that God has set aside for you. By the way, let me change gears for just a moment. How many of you know what a Facebook stalker is? Anybody have any Facebook stalkers out there? Let me define what it is. You know, a Facebook stalker are people who they just kind of lurk in the background. They never post anything, but they post negative stuff on your comments. Okay, so let me ask the question again. Does anybody have any Facebook stalkers out there? Look, I consider myself to be kind of one of the OG original people of Facebook. I've been on it about 10 years when it first came out. I was on Facebook back in the day when you had to use a college email address to sign up. Some of you remember that. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's okay. Look, during my 10 years or so of being on Facebook, I've probably unfriended maybe six people. I say that just to prove that it takes a lot for me to unfriend someone. For me to click the unfriend button, it really takes a lot. But church, there was this guy, but you don't know him, he's not local to this area. There's, there's this guy. I would post something seemingly super innocent. I'd post a scripture. I would post an encouragement. I would put something on Facebook. And this guy would somehow twist my words and want to get into some kind of argument about it. I'll be honest with you. After a while, it just started to get discouraging. It's my wallet. It's my comment. He never posts anything for himself. 
but it's just kind of, he was just always in the background and he waits for you to post something. He just jumps in and he posts something negative. Guess what I did eventually? I went to his page after his most recent one. I mean, this was probably two years ago. As After his most recent discouraging comment and attempt, I just clicked on friend. Listen, church, do not let anybody take your crown. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. He has a mission for you. And if there's people in your life that are only discouraging you and stopping you, slowing you down from accomplishing your purpose, here's what you need to do. I say this in the name of our Lord Jesus. You need to cut them out of your life. Look, here's the truth. Some of you have some people in your life right now that you need to remove from your life. Some of you have some people that call themselves your friends, but they're not your friends. All they do is discourage you. All they do is block you. All they do is slow you down. So here's what you need to do. You need to click unfriend. You need to block them out of your life. Some of you, hopefully I'm not speaking to someone that's currently dating someone, but maybe you are. Hopefully I'm not speaking to someone that's currently engaged with someone that's slowing you down and stopping you from accomplishing God's purpose. But if they are, if they're blocking you from Jesus, you need to block them out of your life. Okay, so the first kind of discourager that the devil sends into your life are people who look at the same facts as you, but they focus on the negative potential. The second kind of discourager that the devil sends into your life, though, is this. They're people who who exaggerate and lie. They exaggerate and lie. Notice this verse in verse 32. It says, jumping back into the story now, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. Okay, let's look at this in the contemporary English version. Notice what it says, this same verse. Then they started spreading rumors and saying, we won't be able to grow anything in that soil. Do you notice what just happened? So before they were saying, This is a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey. And all of a sudden, after Caleb's rebuttal, they're saying, actually, guys, this is not flowing with milk and honey. In fact, it's bad soil. It devours the land. We won't be able to grow anything in this soil. So now the first part didn't work. So now they're trying the second strategy. They're going a little bit deeper. They're exaggerating and they are lying. But it gets even worse. Notice how they exaggerate in line verse 32. It says, And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Now, notice this. Just before, just a few verses before, they were saying, yeah, there's giants in the land. Yeah, they're, they're 13 or 14 feet tall. That's what a giant would be like. But now they're distorting the proportions of the giant. It's not just that they're giants anymore. These are, these are mega giants. We were grasshoppers in their sight. They're not 13 or 14 feet tall. In fact, they're like 50 feet tall. 
You see, sometimes the devil sends people into your life to, the people, they, they have the same facts as you, but they focus on the negative potential. And if that doesn't work, they simply resort to flat out lying for the purpose of discouraging you. That, that's what the devil does, doesn't he? He says you will never overcome that sin. That giant is just way too big. You will never be the person that God wants you to be. You just, sorry, you don't have what it takes. You will never do anything significant in your life. That's the kind of lies that the devil deploys. It's the subtle strategy of the devil. It's discouragement. And guess what? Unfortunately, it worked. Notice what it says, Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. It says, so all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. The devil used 10 people to bring about this really bad report and discourage a congregation of a million people. Wow. Let me ask you a question. Anybody feeling a little bit discouraged these days? By the way, if you do feel a little bit discouraged, guess what? It just means you're human. It happens to the best of us. Notice the scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, the story of David. It says, Then David and all the people who were with him, they lifted up their voices and they wept until they had no more power to weep. It's a story where their wives and their children and their property were, were stolen. It says they wept. They were discouraged. So let me ask you again. Anybody out there feeling discouraged? Just put your hand up wherever you are. If you're feeling a little bit discouraged. You know, maybe you're a parent. You're working from home. Maybe you're not working. But you have kids in the home and you're trying to facilitate online teaching. And guess what? You're not a teacher. And it's a little bit hard. And maybe it's a little discouraging. It's a little bit tough at times. I'm in the same boat. I'm working full-time, full-time pastor. My wife is a full-time teacher, and we're facilitating online education for our two boys. And I'm not going to lie, it's a little hard sometimes. Let me flip the script, though. Maybe you're a teacher. You also have family at home. And instead of facilitating online education for two kids, you're not just doing it for your own kids. You're doing it for 30 kids. I mean, the, kind of the, the difficulty factor is multiplied exponentially. Things are hard for you right now as a teacher. I want to acknowledge that. And I just want to say, God bless you. We honor you and we love you. But maybe you're a teacher and you're feeling a little bit discouraged because it's hard to do this. You're recording videos and putting them up online. You're, going, you're delivering packets to people's homes. The teachers here at Ruth Murdoch Elementary School, where my kids are part, they're amazing. Maybe you work in the medical field, though. Things are hard. I mean, you're trying to be brave because everyone is calling you brave, but you're, you're tired. Maybe deep down inside, you're a little bit afraid. And maybe you don't want to acknowledge it publicly to other people, but even you're feeling a little bit discouraged because this pandemic doesn't seem like it's slowing down anytime soon. Here's the question, church. What do we do? When we find ourselves in that place of discouragement, 
where we're feeling it, where we're hearing the whispers of the devil in our ear trying to discourage us, what do we do? Well, we do a few things. In fact, we deploy the countermeasure that Joshua and Caleb used. Notice what it says here. Exodus chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Verse 16, it says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. Verse 17. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. So I want you to notice now what happened. Notice what the Bible says. These are the leaders and the elders of Israel. This is at the call of Moses. He said, I want you to gather the people and I want you to tell them this promise from God. I'm going to bring you to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And I am going to drive out the giants from the land. I am going to do battle for you. You don't need to be battling by yourself. If you will trust in me, I am going to battle for you. So here's Caleb. He sees these giants in the land. And here's the number one strategy. This is how you counteract the subtle strategy of the devil. Number one, you claim the promises of God. Here's Caleb. He said, guys, it's true. But there, this is the land that he promised he would give us. It's flowing with milk and honey. Therefore, we must overtake it. Let's go. Let's not delay. Let's go right now. So when the devil comes at you with his lies... You come back to him with the promises of God. What do you say, church? When the devil tells you that you will never have victory, you come back to him with Philippians 4, chapter 13. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When the devil tells you that you will never come out of that dark pit of depression, when the devil tells you that you're not going to make it, out of that hole of discouragement. You claim Psalm chapter 40, verse two. You tell him this church. He said, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. I want to tell you something right now based on the authority of the word of God. That the devil can try to delay you. The devil can try to discourage you. The devil can try to stop you. But he cannot stop you from crossing into the heavenly canon. You just claim the promises of God. He's going to try. But you say, not today, devil. You claim the promises of God. Here's the second thing that you do to counteract the subtle strategy of the devil. You become faithful in the small areas of your life. Let me read to you Luke chapter 16, verse 10. And here we find a fascinating theological principle. Jesus says, he who is faithful in very little things is faithful also in much. In other words, if you learn to be obedient to God in the little things If you learn to trust God in the little areas of your life, 
God will, see, God will say, well, look, here's a man, here's a woman, here's a, a child, a teenager, who I can trust with greater responsibility. Because here's what happens. Obedience helps us to build faith and trust in God. It's true. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so as we learn to follow God, say, okay, God, I'm, I'm still following you. I'm running into some obstacles, but Jesus says, you just keep following me and you just keep trusting me. Psalm chapter 23, I love that verse. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Church, let me tell you something. All of us are going to go through some dark valleys at time. But if you have not learned to trust God, when you walk into that dark valley, you are going to be overcome and you are going to be discouraged. But I love what the Bible says. I love what David the psalmist said here in this verse. He said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, In other words, when you get to that dark valley of circumstance, when you get to that dark valley of discouragement, you keep on walking and following the good shepherd. You don't stop in the valley. You do not camp in the valley. You keep walking through the valley, following your good shepherd who will lead you out of it. I want to make an appeal right now to all those watching online. I believe there's some kind of next step that every single one of us can make and that God wants you to make today. The first next step that I want you to make today is this. And by the way, you can take, you can click on an option right now. Click on that link, go there. You're going to see some options on some next steps that you can make. The first next step that I want to encourage you to make today is this. I challenge you to stay faithful to Jesus no matter what happens. How many today want to say, Jesus, I'm going to commit to you that I'm going to stay faithful to you no matter what happens when I'm in this waiting room during the midst of this global pandemic. I'm going to stay faithful to you no matter what. If that's you today, just check that off in the next step box. How about this other one? Maybe right now you are currently just in deep, and discouragement, and maybe you need prayer. So your next step today is this. Just acknowledge, I'm dealing with discouragement and need prayer. If that's you, just lift up your hand wherever you are. Check that off in the next step box. If, if you're dealing with discouragement and need prayer. Finally, I have a little resource. It's really simple. It's ready to go. I'll send it to you tomorrow. It's some Bible promises to give you hope. It's a little PDF. It's really simple. I'd love to send it to you, though. If you could use some Bible promises to encourage you, just check that off. We will send it to you tomorrow. So that's it. I simply want to pray with you now as you take some kind of next step today. So let's just bow our heads wherever we are. Father, I thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit that is not constrained by time or place or technology. Thank you for being with those families sitting on a desk. Thank you for being with those people sitting at a table watching and listening right now. Thank you for being with those in front of a computer, in front of an iPhone, in front of an iPad, receiving this message. 
And Lord, I believe that you are moving hearts supernaturally right now. And Father, I just pray that you would rebuke the devil in the name of Jesus. I pray that you would draw close to every single person right now, please. Send in your angels. Send in your presence. And now simply help them to make that decision that you are calling them to make. And Father, some of them have never made a decision to really follow you before. Some of them really need to be baptized. They've never been baptized before. I pray that they would take that next step that's also in that same area. And especially in these difficult times, Lord, help us to come to you. So Father, now we simply just praise you. We thank you for being a good God. We thank you for rescuing us. For we do pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you.